You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Dr. Joanne Casey, a research practitioner and author. In this episode, Joanne reflects on her experiences as a classroom teacher, working in three sectors of education, government, Catholic and independent, and trying to make sense of the decisions made in schools and their potential impact on students. We also explore Joanne's further professional work and her PhD based around classroom teaching, leadership and teacher professional learning. In her research, Joanne makes use of the collective wisdom found in schools as she talked to teachers and leaders and collected evidence of teachers connecting and collaborating with colleagues and students. The research uncovered a range of similar issues across various school contexts. A lack of time, ever-increasing complexity of tasks, and teachers generally feeling undervalued and overwhelmed. Her findings led to the recently published book, Leading with the Social Brain in Mind, Cognition, Complexity and Collaboration in Schools. Joanne shares insights into the cognitive load of both teachers and school leaders in their day-to-day tasks and how this often relates to time, place and space within a school workday. We chat about current school organisational structures that might be based on outdated models and what some leaders ask of teachers not always being reasonable. We also explore silos, that is, a psychological workplace construct that usually ends up blocking communication and stops getting things done. With an acknowledgement that relationships are at the heart of schools, Joanne offers some research-informed practical strategies to better navigate these complex systems in order to support change and improvement in schools. Here's my conversation with Dr. Joanne Casey. So it's very nice to meet you, Joanne. We've been chatting spontaneously and comfortably for a few minutes. We don't even know each other. We're just meeting each other. No, and it's lovely to meet you, Mark. I was listening to uh, another podcast, so I was uh, with you on it, and it was Fascinating. So I'm really uh, pleased to be here. Thank you. So we've got 15 minutes to find out a little bit more about who you are, where where you come from, what are you interested in, what did you study. So take us back a little bit and and kind of what can you tell us? Okay. Well, I can tell you that um, I started teaching in 1985 And the interesting part, I suppose, around that space was that I went to a a Catholic teacher's college, but I'm not Catholic. And probably when you uh, start to look at the themes that are in the book that I've written uh, and the work that I've done since uh, or before that, it was really uh, that was probably a starting point with regards to looking from the outside and noticing that um, I 
didn't think I was very different. I came from a two-parent family. I'd gone to a little um, state school in my local area and I'd been lucky enough to go then to um, a, an independent school um, where my – it was actually the fact that one of the teacher's husbands worked there. So that was all lovely. And uh, But even at the high school, I noticed that um, – Socioeconomically, I uh, probably didn't fit in in that my uh, wonderful parents were very hardworking middle-class parents. And just when I first started at the high school, my dad, uh, who was about 42, 43 uh, at that time, had a cerebral hemorrhage. And we didn't know that that was uh, what that was. Uh, I just remember... um, being sort of flung into a space of um, confusion, Um, my mother being terribly um, upset because, again, we didn't know what was going on. And so probably my fascination for how the brain works uh, may have started then because the three options that they gave my mother was um, that, first of all, he... uh, could they didn't actually know that he'd had a cerebral hemorrhage and they wouldn't know until they operated and with him coming out uh the doctor that was looking after him said he his gp had seen three cases one had died one never recovered um physical or verbal uh, uh faculties and the other one had Uh, return to full health. So that was quite confronting. But at the time, I don't know whether it was just um, an innocence or a refusal, Um, I just had a very strong um, intuition that all things would be fine. And uh, that's not necessary. I can't even tell you how that worked, but it was I was a child, so... Anyway, uh, fast forward, uh, Dad came out, he survived that. Um, interesting, again, is that, uh, and again, this is all reflection as I've gone through uh, my um, uh, fascination and curiosity about the brain and the way it works, was that he um, was left-handed, but as a kid, the um, they they saw that as a, a problem and so they would slap him till he was right hand, like he'd used his right hand. So what is interesting is that we wondered whether uh, his um, survival and the way things happened and occurred from cerebral hemorrhage, when he came out and he couldn't speak. He did have paralysis, some paralysis. We were lucky enough to have uh, a wonderful physiotherapist uh, and speech pathologist who lived right next door. And they, but we as kids just expected dad to um, get on with it, really. You know, he was dad. Come on, dad. We need to do these things. And so, what we were seeing really at that very early stage was neuroplasticity at work, and um, because his brain was rewiring. Now, again, we didn't have any conception or knowledge of that. I don't even know 
if the mainstream, um, you know, what we knew about neuroscience at that point in time. So fast forward, um, I go into teaching and, um, again, watching these things that are taking place. And I'd been told very early on that because I was not Catholic, there was the possibility that I wouldn't have a position somewhere. So um, I always knew that study then may help me. So I then, so I started with a diploma of teaching and then went to the Bachelor of Ed. And then um, at some point I decided, I thought, you know, I really love the way these organisations work and I was really uh, curious about organisations. So I actually then uh, did a um, grad dip in uh, human resource management and industrial relations at Griffith and I loved it but what was really um, perplexing (laughs) was that I would go to um, the HR stuff and they would say to me, you know, it was very much a win-win, um, very warm, you know, and, and stuff. But the um, industrial relations was win-lose and it was very combative. And, and I just, again, found that really curious uh, when you think about how we operate in um, schools. And I wondered how that was applicable, if, if at all. So I, 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 you know, again, moving on, I decided um, uh, to move up the coast and I had actually thought about moving outside of schools. I was going to try and uh, use that um, uh, study to, to branch out. Well, I applied for a number of jobs. Yeah. Can I just check, are you at this point, have you have you done much teaching, classroom teaching? Oh, yeah. Uh, yes. I, you- I had taught um so i started as a year two so primary i was primary trained uh but i was also in in queensland that was still you know primary was still year one to year seven so i had year seven i taught years i nearly taught every year level by the time i uh moved up the coast and then was i had uh, year three years so i taught every different year level from year one right through to year seven. Um, and that was, again, I, I loved um, the, the variety and the differences in the age groups. That was that was um, amazing. And I remember one year going from year one, I taught year one, and my um, principal at the time, we were at a social event and the um school they said they had difficulty staffing the year seven class and um we were having a social event so there were a couple of drinks involved and I said oh yes I'll do it and so I had been teaching year one and was probably what you would consider an early years teacher and then trans transition to year seven and that again I was um amazed at how much um, I called upon with regards to being able to look at those kids and understand or at least have a, a guess, an educated guess about how I might help them when there were seemed to be gaps in their knowledge. So that was that was good and it was good training to be able to be flexible and move from one group to another. Um, very different backgrounds 
very um, uh, different needs, so diverse needs as well. And that, and that was probably the best part about um, not being a Catholic and a Catholic system. You, you were given opportunities uh, to really expand your skill set because um, at that, that point in time, having somebody who is not Catholic, uh, you, you weren't always work, welcomed <laughs> with open arms. You were sort of, uh, where, will she, where will we put her? Where can we put her? Oh, yes, they're, they're open enough to, to um, have this person. So there, there would be, um, and they were probably the schools that uh, could sometimes be described as challenging for varying reasons. So that, that was a good grounding. Um, and then uh, I decided to do my master's because, uh, again, I was getting itchy feet. Uh, I really loved the teaching. I loved the teaching. But what I was starting to see uh, was that there seemed to be some gaps or at least I couldn't make sense of some of the decisions that were being made and it didn't seem to me that the decisions were always in the best interests of um, the adults or the kids. And so, again, um, and it, it appeared from the conversations that I was having that people felt that their hands were tied. They, they didn't have any voice or choice. It was always a system that shaped or, um, you know, constrained their their um, their understanding and in some cases um moving through was more about uh for for leadership uh it was more about um progressing through yeah i i just it, it was an interesting time so i did the masters and then um decided to leave um, and got three jobs, one at the university part-time, one in a, the state school, in a middle school, and one at the university. And those three pieces together allowed me to see um, how each fed into the other and that's when I decided to do um, not straight away the PhD. I was doing some professional work and then I did the PhD because I was seeing siloed mentality, um, but complexity and um, this thing called collaboration. So I was seeing the, these three things. I, I'd worked with Hawker Brownlow. I was very fortunate to uh, be representing the work of uh, Dr. Mazzano uh, and the DeFores um, through that time. And I, I saw these really valuable pieces, but they seemed to fall over. Over and I couldn't work out why. So that's where I got to with the PhD. So I guess it's one of those things because, as I understand, the PhD is not everyone's cup of tea, but you must have been a witness and experiencing all these things as you're outlining. And so at some point, you, you actually made the decision like an, enough or, you know, whatever the, you know, was it building over, you know? And there was a tipping point. It was because it, it was uh, because I'd been asked uh, a 
a number of times, invited a number of times to, to contemplate doing the PhD. Uh, and to be honest, at the time, I just didn't see how I could. Uh, for me, a PhD was very much um, new and novel, and I couldn't see in the spaces that I was in uh, which area did I want to do it in the area of the classroom teacher? Did I want to do it in leadership or did I want to do it in uh, professional learning? Like it, it was trying to, you know, bring those pieces together. And it was the supervisors. Having the right supervisors makes all the difference. And I was very, very fortunate. And I approached um, one in particular because I was I knew her well. But the other part to that was um, I, because I'd been doing a lot of travelling, I got to read lots of books and one of those books was The Silo Effect by Gillian Tett and um, that's when I came across Dunbar's work and I started to get really curious and that's where it led me. We're going to find out more detail about, you know, the sort of um, the, the, the kind of things that you're talking about but um like silo i know in your book there's a few photos of silo and we hear that phrase but um what is maybe we can well maybe we can ask that in you know in a few minutes but so what what happened after you 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 did the phd and then i guess it's is that um i should have read your bio a little bit more (laughs) um, closely but have you you finished your phd Yep, I finished the PhD, yeah, and then um, chose to. So the PhD was also to, um, I I also understood that education had been, and you may have noticed, been uh, through a tsunami of um, specific kinds of data and particularly leaning towards numerical data. And that's where I, and to be honest, it was not my wheelhouse and I had actually planned trying to um, do just qualitative uh, and tell a story. But I also understood that if I was going to get um, the ideas across, uh, I needed to do that in a way that um, people would listen um, and those that needed to hopefully listen and some of the stories would and the messages would resonate. Hence, I did a mixed methods, and that was mind-blowing. <laughs> but it was good. It was very good. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So with all this talk, I'm just wondering, what what was important when you were completing your PhD, what what were some of the influences and drivers um, that that shaped your process? Yeah, uh, the, the, the key thing for me was that I had worked in a numerous um, contexts, so independent schools, Catholic schools, uh, doing the work of uh, professional learning, supporting uh, school leaders to implement change initiatives. So what does that mean, that diversity is important or the fact that um, I think it was, yeah, diversity, but the the fact was that as diverse as these um, schools were with their contexts, um, 
they still had similar um, issues that were coming up. So time, um, teachers and leaders were feeling undervalued and um, they were feeling um, overwhelmed with the enormity of the work that they had to do and the pieces. So um, at times I was fortunate to be able to move beyond and look from uh, a, a space where I could pull the pieces and show them visually how they fit together in the puzzle. And what was interesting was this multiple demands and them trying to juggle with very limited time and the pace of the work seemed to be increasing, the sophistication of the work was increasing and then the complexity of the organisation. So the exhaustion of the people uh, within those uh, different uh, organisations um, left them no time to actually pause and take a look at what was actually occurring around them that they could actually think about going, okay, let's just stand back and see what we can do to adjust and change. It was like stepping on a fast-moving train and very difficult to actually stop it or get off it or until the end of a year or, or and even the, the end of the year, like if you're in schools, by June or July, they're starting to plan for the next year. So they haven't even, um, you know, and, and everything is that term related, like, a, you know, in chunks of time. Uh, and that was, for me, part of what I wanted to highlight was that maybe the current organisational structures, the way we've looked at schools today are not, you know, they still fit the model of the previous century and what we are asking of people um, is not reasonable in the time that they have available and I can say that till the cows come home but unless we have some other kind of support mechanisms or some research to validate and we know we know that but we hear oh what's the empirical research what's the you know and is it valid research and and so on yeah, the you would have looked, did you look you would have looked at that in as you're you're preparing for your PhD, you're looking just to sort of see what's already out there. But then yes. sorry, I did interrupt you mid-sentence. No, you? no, but, you're right. You're absolutely right. It, it's you do look at that, but when we look at some of the research, we look at well, when we look at the research, we look at the studies and where they've um, been undertaken. And, and and here's a very simple piece. Um, we would present uh, at um, about collaboration. So collabor- and I believe in collaboration wholeheartedly. But what I would see uh, is that in primary schools, sometimes it's easier to implement collaborative teams in primary school. And when I talk about collaboration, that was the other part was that. And, and this is what the research supported, was that even though we talk about this term called collaboration, it gets used interchangeably with anything that 
you know, somebody working alongside of somebody else is they can turn that collaboration. So there isn't always a consistent understanding of what we mean by collaboration in this particular school, in this particular faculty. And in secondary schools, it, it's even more um, problematic because they, they can actually be the, the resources available are actually being fought against because there's limited resources. So the money that might be used to um, release people, you know, that they're saying, well, what are we collaborating for and where would that, why would we do that? Uh, so they don't always see that um, it as being worthwhile. So it's one, the terms are being used interchangeably. Two, the resources are, are you know, are finite. And third, they've got multiple demands. So they're trying to prioritise. Yeah. I'm just yeah. wondering, just in terms of maybe like take one and a half giant steps backwards, in yeah. terms of you as the PhD researcher, are you yeah. asking teachers in schools, for example, and leaders in schools, all the, are you having all these conversations and finding out this this idea of collaboration? Oh, that's interesting. There's different definitions. And then you're kind of making a few notes and then this is building on your your ideas or, you know, like I'm trying to desperately to separate you from the content, the content of yeah. this book and the content of your research. And yeah. what, I'm just wondering, like, what and, was and the, the process. process like? Yeah, so the process itself um, for, for doing the PhD started out with, um, as I said, the, the book around silos. And what I was seeing was I thought that um, – I was observing silos or, or this notion of people contained within their own space. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, I have to interrupt again. Oh, I got to yeah, interrupt go for again. It. This is a hangover from our a few minutes back. What do you mean by silo? We hear that all the time and people in workplaces, yeah, oh, those silos and, you know, I've had 30 years myself of people talking about silos. But just so that we can, we're clear what, and don't let, don't make me look this book up and read out the definition. What, 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 is, what are we talking about? <laughs> no. So if, if you think about, um, I'm hoping that, um, People who are listening have seen um, grain silos. So they're those, you know, very uh, imposing um, cement, um, yes, uh, structures that you find on, um, you know, farming situation. And they are built very solidly uh, and quite tall, quite deep. And so if you notice, uh, they're not, they're separate. So the thing is that when we think about silos from a human uh, construct, it's actually a, a, a psychological construct that we it provides bar it, it maintains and provides barriers between the different uh, parts of the organisation. So in schools, so and you you know we would hear things like. Um, when I was in the primary context, so I was working in a uh, second, a, a, a P to 12 or a foundation to 12 
college. And what I would hear was when I was on the um, secondary campus in the high school and, and I was at that point a um, a, a, a leader, um, I was um, – I would be working across those um, two uh, – um, campuses and they were separated uh, so they physically weren't on the same campus but because people knew my history on the secondary campus when I was introducing bits and pieces the criticism I would get is oh that's not the way we do it here Joanne um, and because you wouldn't understand because you're a primary school that's what the primaries do or they would also then blame well, this is why we've got these kids like this because the primaries haven't done this. And so I would laugh because then the senior school would say, well, the middle school teachers are not doing this. So they would, there would be this blame and they would also say, well, we can't do that because this is how we do it here um, and you don't understand. Um, so they wouldn't necessarily see connections either between that they're actually teaching human beings rather than just, and I'm not saying that the subject's not important. It is absolutely imperative, but there were these gaps. And then I'd go over to the primary school and I would be leading the work in the primary school and they would say to me, Joanne, you don't understand because you're a secondary person. <laughs> That's not how we can do it here. Rather than you re reacting to that, you realized and remembered, well, this is part of my research. I'm going to make a note and I'm going to, <laughs> I'm assuming yeah, that I this think, is what you did. Well, at that point, I hadn't actually started the PhD. It, it, if anything, all of these different pieces started to uh, coalesce and, and come together and it was what prompted me to finally say, I need to do something. I need to uh, explore something and bring this together in some way. There were a couple of aha moments. And um, so part of, as I said, doing the research was one, finding the question and locating that question, and that was difficult. Um, what was and the question? Then, what was your, uh, what? Have I frozen again? Oh, a little bit. I think we kind of Oh, gosh, it was so it long. It's all right. Okay, what, what's yeah. the question? Uh, it, it was I'm seated. I'm ready to hear it. Yeah. I, you know what? It's so long. Um, what, what are the associations between um, organisational structures, collaboration and limitations for cognitive um, something or other? To be honest, I can't even remember. It is so big and I have to look at it each time. I. But it was taking three pieces. It was taking the structures of schools Collaboration is this wonderful um, process for improvement and this notion of relationships between people, but also the piece around the cognitive limitations for the number of relationships that we can maintain at any one time. Now, I've read, I've read your book. That tell us about <laughs> the Dunbar number. Yes. Oh, I know. Dunbar, look. Um, so I, I came across that in, as I said, the silo effect uh, by Gillian Tett. And what what she was looking at was organisations who had 
basically uh, come through the GFC and things like that. And this, she noted about the size of um, organisations and she was mentioning Dunbar's number. And basically Dunbar's number is, so uh, Robin Dunbar is an evolutionary evolutionary, um, biologist and I hope I've got that right. Sorry, Robin. Um, And um, he came up with this number that basically after lots and lots of uh, research that we have the ability to maintain at any one time about 150 relationships and they're not equal in their strength. Uh, it is dependent, they're hierarchical um, and it's dependent on uh, the trust, uh, the frequency um, and the strength of those relationships. Now what that triggered for me was all of a sudden I thought in schools we always say, you know, oh, a teacher has one class. or a t-. So we've never, or, or, you know, they are working in three teams. So we, it's, we use it as a collective. We actually never um, identify and count um, how many relationships that a teacher or a leader are trying to maintain at any one time. And so when you start to do the numbers, you start to quickly add up. And we, we also need to understand that though that 150 is not at work and at home, it is all together. And a layer that on top of um, if you look at the professional standards and start to unpack those professional standards and look at the pieces so we're supposed to know so much about our students so and our content and at the same time have these wonderful, very in-depth, deep conversations um, around, yes, um, the deep conversations around um, collaboration. So I started to, that's where I wanted to collect evidence. And so um, that was part of the survey uh, from from the quantitative, the, the and I asked people to identify who they were actually um, connecting with, and, and when I say connecting, I, I actually said collaborating, and we def- I defined collaboration in that space, and then um, asked them to put the numbers. So it was self-reported data. And we, we did see some outliers, but there was an average and the average was way above um, what, uh, you know, the 150. And they're talking about on a, like a day-to-day basis uh, and two to three times a week. So more often than not, they were having to uh, maintain uh, these relationships and balance, but then switch. So not only maintain the relationship, they had to switch cognitive, each of those relationships needed cognitive, um, yeah, cognitive uh, change. So the complexity of that was underestimated. The social complexity, of, um, we, we didn't realise around that. So we were able to, or I was able to unpack that through the, um, the research. The one key thing that stood with me was when I was seeking 
uh, participants. I shared the Dunbar's number as a starting point and the number of people who would come to me afterwards basically just nodding and saying, this is so, this is resonating, this is so great, but what can you do? Like there was this sense of um, less hope and despair and we couldn't do anything about it. And so um, I wanted to make a promise uh, to to try and at least get their voices um, in the room and out as much and me representing that. That's, that's what I was trying to do with the work. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So there's lots of ideas that you've covered and, you know, that the kind of all that territory of research. I, I want to just ask, well, why? What, what's the point of this sort of thing? And I guess what does it look like on a on a practical level? Maybe not not that it, research needs to always feed back into, you know, practical considerations. But um, yeah, what, can you tell us more about how you know the usability maybe of of some of your ideas that you've you've um, just uncovered in your research? Yes. So we know that schools um, are basically places of change and they're always um, being asked to be involved in uh, improvement and they work, the the educators in those schools work very hard. So this, the purpose for me is to actually give them some practical strategies to um, wrap around the work that they're doing and be aware that you know, the, the work that they're doing, they know that it's hard, but this allows them, uh, I hope, to give them some space to actually then make different decisions or understand that if they make the decision uh, that what they achieve in the time uh, may take much longer. You know, we sometimes in research and even policy documents, it seems like it's a very easy, oh, well, we'll just do this and that will happen. And that's, you know, if you work in schools long enough, it's not as simple. And the other part that I found was that um, our leaders and school, um, you know, educators were talking about schools being complex, but at no point, Uh, in the time that I've been uh, working in the university or in the professional learning space, have we actually understood what does complexity theory, what does that mean for the practical nature of what we do in schools? And when you start to look at it, you start to go, oh, hold on, we're operating um, in a space that we, we know is complex But if I had these pieces that basically say, well, it's unpredictable, it's this, it's that, but we put in um, these very, um, the very nature of the systems we're putting in place is for predictability. And so we're actually making life harder. And I I suppose my thing at the moment too is how do we um, not underestimate and undervalue the work that people are doing and I'm um, really 
cognizant of system leaders and policy documents that basically just sort of hand it over and then some leaders are left floundering about, well, how do we put that in? And there's not just one policy document. There are, you know, so many that they end up drowning in them. How I see my, my work is that I want to work alongside. Um, I am happy to try and support in any way that I can with regards to this this these pieces of work. But that I'm hoping that the book in itself allows them to, um, you know, enough to give them uh, that they can do it in their own time, that they don't need to uh, call in others to help them. Uh, mind you, again, collaboration is important, but please under, understand that it is more socially complex than we first understood. So we need to give people the time, place and space rather than just keep adding to the plate. And that's where we um, in schools find it very, very difficult to take something off. Um, in the words of Dylan William, uh, he would say the most difficult part is to uh, find something that is good to remove, to replace it with something even better. And that's, you know, when we're, you know, these practices that we put in place, we're not saying that they're not good, but could it be uh, replaced with something even better? And half the, and sometimes we don't even know because we are so stuck within our own um, organisation, in our own place, that we may not have been able to have a look outside. And, um, you know, there are individuals in your schools that have probably worked in different systems and different schools and they can be a really um, hidden gem with the insights that they can provide. Um, and, and that's that's the other thing. How, how do we make use of that wisdom in, in a school, the collective wisdom, without burning people out? One of the things that is really, really clear is that humans are at the centre of all of this it's like you, you need the, the numbers, the quantities in order to have evidence to a degree, or, you know, to, to kind of provide as part of our, you know, evidence-informed practice, if that's, a, you know, use that phrase. So that's yep, important. Absolutely. But then when you've got humans and then even more complex humans interacting with other humans, and I mean, I'm kind of looking at this table that's got all the individual numbers of interactions with positional roles, I was having a little chuckle this afternoon looking at that thinking, wow, those numbers, are, there they are in black and white, and yet on a on a certain level, that would be, oh, yeah, we're really busy or I'm talking, like it's all kind of swept away. It's not really acknowledged for what it is. And then as you've outlined, the cognitive load to keep up with all of that is like bigger than maybe people yep. generally would acknowledge. Think about in understanding a subject area, I um, need to understand the content in a way that then what kind of assessment. So I need to understand how to assess it, uh, what's a valid assessment. And if I'm looking at um, my students, you know, 
that all of that unpacking takes time and the reason I say that is that I've been working for the last seven years with a particular school um, in Melbourne and we've been focusing in on literacy and the understanding of reading and writing and in those contexts and what what's been really valuable um, are the conversations that come with that dedicated time to unpack it that's only one small area that they're dealing with and it's huge so I think what we underestimate is um, the enormity of what we're asking the teachers to do and and school leaders how to lead that work and how to understand that um, and then going into a classroom and uh, looking at the practicalities when you go into the classroom to to actually put that into practice. And as much as it seems very simple and straightforward, you go in there, even knowing the kids doesn't mean, and it's not guaranteed that our students will react and act in a way that we uh, will know, but we need to adjust and change to support those students. And we're, it's, it's a huge, a huge job and it's really important. And I, I think we have lots of um, support systems in place, but we uh, don't always have the ability to ac access them. So if, even with technology, understanding, you know, when I'm actually using the technology, why am I using that technology and how will it support um, these students? Will it support all students all of the time? And I imagine if someone you know teachers are listening they'll say no you know anyone just has to look at their own family with kids if you've got three kids are they all the same do they eat all the same do, you know what you automatically adjust and change and try to be just and fair but you're constantly juggling to support those kids is it an everyday kind of making an adjustment or being more aware or working as a team or, you know, I don't want to don't want to creep into the collaboration. No. Industry, but yeah, I no, it, it's um, I would suggest that the first step is to uh, not just acknowledge but to be proactive in understanding that if we truly believe that relationships are at the heart of what we do in schools, then we need to nurture them in ways that will support the very best outcomes for both our adults as well as our students. And we also need to acknowledge that um, it, you know, the, the pace, the pace of what we're doing in schools is not sustainable. Uh, and really taking a step back means to look at the structures. I suppose I'm curious to find schools that have started to think about the way schools are organised and are they still fit for purpose and can they be um, adjusted and reconfigured um, in ways that are authentic and, again, are at the heart of what we are trying to do. So the thing is, for me, it 
it sometimes it becomes this either or and and again that's not the way I operate I like to think about well what's the possibility what aren't we seeing um, what may be working in one context that we can think about that could maybe work in a different context but we might need to adjust and again and research informed you know sometimes uh, I get concerned about fads that uh, come through and because they, they're all bells and whistles and we're going to get this in this amount of time and, look, you're, you're going to get this amount of growth. So it's all hype and, um, and then there's disillusionment. And for those um, working in schools, I think that is a disservice. And um, so I would suggest the first step is to uh, actually do a count of the relationships and the you know that first part of the book of see what see what what's happening in your context is this true is this true for your context and we sometimes push aside the naysayers I would say they're our great barometers and as much as we don't like listening uh, to the negative. What I would suggest is we um, open ourselves up to, well, what might that be telling us that we haven't seen and what can we do? I, I think on the whole, uh, our leaders and our schools do the very best they can, um, and but they're not given uh, the time and the space. Uh, and I think that needs to be really explicit from system leaders uh, it's like giving people permission to slow down. Um, I'm a great fan of Gert Biester. Biester. I always say Biester. It's not. It's Biester. Uh, and he is, uh, you know, he ha he has some really challenging uh, thoughts around that. Um, and so I think slowing down is probably our biggest challenge and I would love to support or see people who, or hear from people who have started that that journey. Yeah, like it kind of, I like it as an idea because it's on a surface level, it's really simplistic. But then when you think about what that actually is, it, it's really just allocating like timetabling, like a, a kind of, we want you to collaborate or, or kind of work with this other teacher or something. And so here is 30 minutes in the day or something, you know, like I'm not, I'm not running a school myself, but it's just acknowledging you're not you're not going to just pile it on and do it in your own time after class. You've you, it's all it's like that kind almost like a systemic support of you know it needs support from the unions because so this other piece is that the unions you know so there, there are it's not simplistic. There are all of these moving pieces that. Um, you know, you know the way we work out even what is considered, um, you know, the day, the work day of either a leader or you know a full time employer. So, so it's not simple, and um, I think some systems might have a little bit more leeway than others. But I think you know, finding out from our colleagues in different states and in different um, uh, spaces that we can actually explore those. I mean, look, to be honest, the universities are experienced the same. You know, my own university ex experiences the same um, constraints, and you know, uh, metrics are a huge issue, and they don't 
the, the type of metrics that we're, we're talking about do not always tell the whole story. And um, I think that's um, problematic, you know. And so we jump in with inferences about, oh, we've got this metric, great, we can do this now, and now we've fixed it. And, you know, I, I haven't even begun to, to say that all of these wonderful systems we put in place, like the platforms that we put in place for um, our teachers and our leaders to be able to collect the data, um, you know, that takes time. And it's another layer of, you know, being able to add those pieces of, of work, even understanding that, you know, understanding what we can do with that um, data. But I leave that work to the wonderful Selena Fisk, who is, is great in that space. So I think, you know, what's really important about uh, being able to engage in this work, one, it allows people to uh, realise that, you know, they're not... Um, should I say, going mad if they think that they're exhausted and uh, they're tired. In fact, there is there are real reasons. But here's the, the beauty is that we can actually make changes, we can make adjustments, and I think that's the, the key. And it's about, again, stepping back, taking some time and carving out that time. And I know that schools are already doing that and they're, they're being very creative with, uh, their budgets because they're looking at the budget and saying, well, if we've got this pot of money, how might we do this differently? And I think that's exciting um, and the more they share that uh, is is brilliant. And so from a, a starting point, the book allows people to um, take that complexity. I think the last chapter uh, where we look at their situational mapping with Wardley mapping, that. Uh, I think has great power in uh, being able to highlight and have these conversations where sometimes um, different parts of the organisations might be having uh, a different um, view of what is important and what is not or what is visible. Uh, so sometimes, you know, and so having that as a, um, a graphic visual uh, is also really powerful. I happily um, have an association and an and, and adjunct lecturer at the university and that they've just offered that to me and I, I love that. But I don't want to live in a university. I love schools. I love being in schools and I love um, supporting my colleagues. Um, I'm probably knowing uh, that I'm not frightened to get into a classroom and trial something out. And I will not promise that it will work, but I will work alongside, um, whether it be a leader, doesn't matter. It do does not matter. Um, it's how do we do this together? So it's really, the question is the why. In this episode, I chatted with Dr. Joanne Casey. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes, including links to Joanne's website and details about her recently published book, Leading with the Social Brain in Mind, Cognition, Complexity and Collaboration in Schools. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.